Hello, everyone. Welcome to the June 13th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The U.S. Supreme Court just published a decision in favor of an employee in a closely watched employment law case involving mandatory arbitration clauses in employment contracts. The employer in this case was Southwest Airlines. Southwest carried the baggage of over 162 million passengers to domestic and international destinations in 2019 when this class action case was filed. To move that cargo, Southwest employs ramp agents who physically load and unload baggage, airmail, and freight. But it also employs ramp supervisors who train and supervise teams of ramp agents. Frequently, ramp supervisors step in to load and unload cargo alongside ramp agents. The plaintiff in this case, Latrice Saxon, was a ramp supervisor for Southwest Airlines at Chicago Midway International Airport. Saxon alleged that Southwest was failing to pay proper overtime wages to ramp supervisors when she filed a class action lawsuit against Southwest under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Because Saxon's employment contract required her to arbitrate wage disputes individually, Southwest brought, sought to enforce its arbitration agreement and moved to dismiss her case at the federal trial court. Saxon responded to the motion to dismiss by claiming that ramp supervisors were a class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce and therefore exempt from the Federal, federal Arbitration Act's or FAA's coverage. So the crux of this case was a determination of whether her work as either being something involving interstate commerce or outside the definition of interstate commerce, such as most it involved loading rather than transporting baggage. The district court trial, the district trial court disagreed with her and ruled that only those involved in actual transportation and not those who merely handle goods fall within the Federal Arbitration Act exemption. The United States Court of Appeals Seventh Circuit, however, reversed the trial court, concluding instead that the act of loading cargo onto a vehicle to be transported interstate is, in itself, interstate commerce, as that term was understood at the time of the FAA's enactment back in 1925. The Seventh Circuit's decision conflicted with an earlier 2020 decision in the Fifth Circuit on the same identical issue. Thus, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case to resolve the disagreement between the two circuit courts of appeal. The Supreme Court held in a unanimous 8-0 decision that Saxon belonged to a class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce to which the Federal Arbitration Act exemption applies. However, the Supreme Court rejected the contention that all airline workers are exempted from the FAA and instead requires a fact-specific test 
focused on the actual job duties of the plaintiff worker. Saxon argued that because air transportation as an industry is engaged in interstate commerce, airline employees constitute a class of workers covered by the FAA exemption. Southwest argued that the FAA exemption applies to classes of workers based on their conduct, not their employers, and the relevant class therefore includes only those airline employees who are actually engaged in interstate commerce on their day-to-day work. The Court of Appeals rejected Saxon's industry-wide approach, as did the U.S. Supreme Court. In making its determination, it noted that the Federal Arbitration Act speaks of workers, not employees or servants. The word workers directs the interpreter's attention to the performance of work. Thus, Saxon belongs to a class of workers who physically load and unload cargo on and off airplanes on a frequent basis. The parties dispute whether that class of airplane cargo loaders is engaged in foreign or interstate commerce and thus exempt from mandatory arbitration. The Supreme Court held that cargo loaders were such a class. To be engaged in something means to be occupied, employed, or involved in it. Commerce, meanwhile, includes, among other things, the transportation of goods, both by land and by sea. Airline cargo loaders, therefore, are such a class of exempt workers. And in another case, the WCAB said that an applicant attorney who wanted to depose the defense attorney required extremely good cause, which was an extremely high standard. In this case, a 2021 award concluded that Terry Scott suffered 100% permanent disability as a result of injuries caused by her employment as a peace officer by the city of Los Angeles. The City of Los Angeles City Attorney filed a petition for reconsideration of that 100% award. While the case was pending, a decision on reconsideration, the City of Los Angeles filed a motion and a DOR to quash the deposition of its City Attorney, Bryant Yip. Yip accused the applicant's attorneys of bad faith, frivolous and harassing actions and tactics, in setting his deposition and conditioning withdrawal of the deposition subpoena on the withdrawal of the city's petition for reconsideration. Reconsideration of the 100% award was then denied. Attorneys for Officer Scott then filed their counterpetition for sanctions, essentially accusing Mr. Yip of making false material statements in his petition for reconsideration. Applicants' attorneys averred that when Mr. Yip filed the petition for reconsideration, he was, quote, lying through his teeth, end quote, with the intention to disenfranchise a dedicated and decorated police officer from her rightful workers' compensation benefits under the law. In response to both petitions, the work comp judge issued his notice of intention to impose sanctions and costs. <clears throat> excuse me, against applicants' attorneys 
and those attorneys filed verified declarations objecting to the imposition of sanctions for various reasons. Then, the work comp judge ordered more than $7,000 in sanctions against applicants' attorneys. Applicants' attorneys then petitioned for reconsideration of this sanction order, which was granted, and the matter remanded back to further develop the record. In doing so, the WCAB panel noted that under the California Civil Code, ordinarily a party may take the deposition of any person. However, the WCAB panel concluded that depositions of opposing counsel are presumptively improper, severely restricted, and require extremely good cause, which is a very high standard. The panel went on to note that since the merits of applicants' disability claim, as well as the defendant's petition for reconsideration of the findings, have been determined in applicants' favor, it was unable to discern what, if any issue pending an applicant's case, could be ripe for discovery by deposing the city's attorney. Thus, the panel concluded applicants' attorney's argument that they should be allowed to depose the defendant's attorney lacked merit. However, instead of issuing the notice of intention and determining the sanctions issue based on applicants' attorney's written response, the WCB panel said that the judge should have obtained a pretrial conference statement from the parties on the sanctions issue, held a pretrial conference, and then held a full hearing on sanctions. Accordingly, the WCB granted reconsideration and rescinded the sanctions order, and the matter was returned to trial level for further proceedings. And another WCAB decision discussed and clarified the difference between medical and vocational evidence required to support apportionment of permanent disability. In this case, Robert Gonzalez was employed by Northrop Grumman Systems as a structural aircraft mechanic when he suffered an admitted continuous trauma injury to multiple body parts. There is evidence of medical apportionment in the case based on the findings of an AME and PQME. However, the vocational expert who reported on behalf of Mr. Gonzalez said that the concept of apportionment in medicine and in vocational issues are two different concepts, which are not always the same as one another. He went on to report that in medicine, the concept applies to impairment, whereas in vocational issues, it is disability and employability, and the two are different from one another. The work comp judge therefore found that the injury caused total disability without apportionment and reconsideration was denied in this panel decision. The employer contended that total permanent disability cannot be found where there is valid apportionment by the reporting medical physicians. However, in deciding the dispute, the WCAB reviewed the 2011 Ogilvie decision as well as the 2015 Contra, County, Contra Costa County decision, both landmark decisions on this issue. The primary method for rebutting a scheduled rating is 
a determination that the injured worker is not amenable to rehabilitation and therefore has suffered a greater loss of future earning capacity than what is reflected in the scheduled rating. This case authority also conceded that the employee's diminished future earnings must be directly attributable to the employee's work-related injury and not due to non-industrial factors such as general economic conditions, illiteracy, proficiency in speaking English, or an employee's lack of education. In this case, there was ample evidence of medical apportionment. However, the record summarized in this decision said nothing about non-industrial vocational factors that cannot be a directly attributable to the work-related injury. Lacking such evidence by way of rebuttal to the vocational expert or cross-examination of the claimant's expert to establish and embellish these factors, the award was supported by substantial evidence. The clear takeaway from this decision is to be aware of the difference between apportionment based on medical factors and apportionment based on vocational factors, and to thoroughly develop evidence on both. NBC7 San Diego reports that seven San Diego Police Department officers have filed workers' compensation claims after blood testing showed elevated lead levels in their bodies, and the police chief has shut down an outdoor gun range believed to be the cause. The city ordered air sample tests at the range after officers raised concerns about a month ago. It is not unusual to find higher levels of lead at firing ranges, but the test showed lead concentrations more than 10 times greater than the OSHA standard for acceptable air levels. Every year, San Diego Police Department officers are required to pass firearm proficiency training at the range for their service weapons and off-duty weapons. That's a minimum of three sessions per gun. A little more than a year ago, the city installed a Vortex Total Containment Trap as part of an ongoing renovation project for the gun range after the range was cited for violations related to lead prior to the renovation during a routine inspection of the range back in February 2020. Five violations were discovered at that time having to do with proper handling and disposal of hazardous waste. The police union says the firearms instructors who work at the range now suffer from chronic headaches and joint pain and that all seven officers recently tested for lead exposure and reported blood lead levels in the teens. The California Department of Public Health considers any level over five dangerous. Doctors say no level of lead in your body is considered safe, and Cal OSHA requires that employers immediately remove workers who test at or above 50 micrograms of lead per deciliter of blood. That is why lead dust is especially concerning at gun ranges. And in regulatory news, the mileage rate that claims administrators pay injured workers for travel 
will increase from 58.5 cents per mile to 62.5 cents a mile for travel on or after July 1, 2022, regardless of the date of injury. California statutes and regulations require the mileage rate to be tied to the Internal Revenue Service published mileage rate. The IRS normally adjusts the standard mileage rate each fall for the next calendar year based on its annual study of the fixed and variable costs of operating an automobile. But this year, the IRS commissioner announced that in recognition of recent gasoline price increases, the IRS made this special adjustment for the final months of 2022. The DWC will likely post a news line regarding the new mileage rate for travel once they review the IRS announcement. Mid-year, mileage rate increases are rare. The last one was back in 2011. California voters have cast their primary ballot for the leader for the state agency that wields significant power over home, auto, and workers' compensation insurance policies. Nine candidates are vying for the insurance commissioner job, and the top two finishers in the June 7th primary will face off in the November general election. The incumbent Ricardo Lara is looking to hold on to his seat amid a fierce challenge from a Democratic opponent, San Rafael Assemblymember Mark Levine. Lara has been under fire since 2019 when news media reported questionable campaign contributions from associates of applied underwriters, while applied was under investigation by his department. While much of the attention in the race has been centered on jabs between Lara and Levine, Seven other contenders are also running for the posts. And unofficial results have been published by the California Secretary of State. Ricardo Lara has 37% of the vote, with Republican Robert Howell in second place with 17.8%. And what was thought to be a frontrunner, Mr. Levine, is in third place with only 16.8%. Mr. Howell personally owns and operates an electronics firm in the Silicon Valley and boasts that he is not an insurance agent or a politician, and he says he's proud to be a Reagan Republican. Howell pledged not to take insurance company political donations, and he will now likely proceed to the November election, where he will challenge Ricardo Lara for the insurance commissioner position. And Congress has passed a bill hoping to improve care for injured workers under the Federal Workers' Compensation System. The Improving Access to Workers' Compensation for Injured Federal Workers Act was passed in the House of Representatives on a strong bipartisan basis. The federal government is the largest employer in the nation, and the Federal Employers' Compensation Act provides federal employees benefits. The proposed law hopes to allow injured federal workers to receive treatment for work-related injuries from state-licensed physician assistants, known as PAs, and nurse practitioners, known as TPs, excuse me, NPs. 
PAs and NPs are increasingly taking the role of primary care providers for many patients. But current law prohibits federal workers from being treated by PAs and NPs for workers' compensation cases, even in states that allow PAs and NPs to practice independently. The bipartisan bill earned the support of organizations representing both health care providers and federal employees nationwide, such as the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, the American Association of Physician Assistants, the National Treasury Employees Union, and the National Poster Mail Handlers Union. However, in California, the bill seems to have triggered a turf war with the California Medical Association that published an urgent message on its website to its members, claiming Congress is rushing to push through a bill that recklessly expands the scope of practice at the federal level, or so it says. The California Association went on to claim that, if passed, this bill would allow nurse practitioners and physician assistants to diagnose, prescribe, treat, and certify an injury and extent of disability for purposes of compensating federal workers. And the association claims that to take this function away from physicians, who they say have the proper education, training, and expertise expertise to make these evaluations, is a threat to the practice of medicine, and quite simply it says, unacceptable. And the American Medical Association also voiced similar opposition. The proposed law will now move to the Senate, and if passed, will need the approval of President Joe Biden. And in medical news, new data from the California Workers' Compensation Institute shows the types of drugs used to treat injured workers in California has shifted dramatically over the past decade, with opioids becoming far less prevalent and anti-inflammatory drugs, that's NSAIDs, accounting for an increasing share of the prescriptions and the total drug spend within the workers' comp system. The growth in NSAIDs over the past decade has been due to the increased use of inexpensive ibuprofen, which increased from 27% of all anti-inflammatories in 2012 to 41.2% of NSAIDs dispensed in 2021. As a result, ibuprofen is now the most heavily used drug in workers' compensation, ranking well ahead of another NSAID, naproxen, which ranked second. Meanwhile, opioids' share of the workers' comp prescriptions continued to decline, falling to 10.2% last year, although most of the decline in opioid use within the past decade occurred between 2012 and 2019. As in 2020, anticonvulsants, dermatologicals, and antidepressants rounded out the top five most prescribed drug groups in 2021. Anticonvulsants and dermatologicals are often used to treat pain, and their share of the workers' comp prescriptions has risen over the past decade while antidepressant share climbed to a record 8% in 2021. On the other hand, 
Musculoskeletal drugs have fallen from 10.6% of all workers' comp prescriptions in 2016 to 6% of prescriptions last year, a drop that followed the state's implementation of a workers' comp formulary in 2017. The formulary made most prescriptions for musculoskeletal drugs subject to utilization review with limited exceptions, where they are allowed as special fill or perioperative drugs. According to Fair Health's monthly telehealth regional tracker, telehealth utilization, as measured by telehealth's share of all medical claim lines, fell nationally in this, mar this March for the second straight month. Telehealth utilization also decreased in February in every U.S. Census region, with the greatest increase decrease in the South, followed closely by decreases in the West. The drop in telehealth utilization was likely due to continuing reduction in the reported number of and severity of, of COVID-19 infections, which may have led more patients to return to in-person health care services. Data published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the number of reported cases of COVID-19 continued to fall this March. The rankings of the top five telehealth diagnoses did not change nationally in March 2022, but there were some changes in the regional level. In all regions and nationally, mental health conditions remained the top-ranking telehealth diagnosis. But in the Midwest, psychiatrists and primary care non-physicians switched places, with psychiatrists rising to fourth place in March and primary care non-physicians dropping to fifth place. In all regions and nationally, for these second month in a row, social workers remained the top-ranking telehealth specialty. In March 22, the rankings of the top five telehealth procedure codes did not change nationally or in any region. The number one telehealth procedure code nationally and in every region remained CPT2 code 90837, which is one hour of psychotherapy. And in other industry news, kicking off June is the National Safety Month, and one year after announcing a historic partnership with Amazon, the National Safety Council unveiled the first-of-its-kind pledge to reduce the most common workplace injury, musculoskeletal disorders, or MSDs. During the inaugural Workplace Safety Summit of the Business Action to Prevent Musculoskeletal Injuries, more than 15 of the nation's leading organizations joined this effort and signed the pledge to improve workplace safety, reduce musculoskeletal disorder risk, and enhance all workers' well-being. MSDs such as tendonitis, back strains and sprains, and carpal tunnel syndrome impact nearly a quarter of the world's population and are the leading cause of worker disability, early retirement, and limitations to gainful employment. The MSD pledge seeks to create safer outcomes for millions of workers worldwide 
by reducing these injuries by 25 percent by 2025. Organizations signing the MSD pledge promise to reduce risks by analyzing the causes of MSD injuries across operations and investing in solutions and practices that reduce risks to workers. And they pledge to innovate and collaborate by leveraging best practices and sharing learnings and countermeasures to expand upon innovations to improve safety practices as well as pledging to build an organizational culture that values safety by promoting workplace where safety, excellence, transparency, and accurate reporting are equally valued, and where everyone at every level of the organization is accountable for the safety and health of its workers. MSD pledge members will participate in the MSD Solutions Index, an annual company index that analyzes the benefits of the pledge over time. The index will aggregate data on risk reduction strategies, workplace safety culture, and innovation and collaboration, while also identifying areas for targeted action and uncovering trends to inform future approaches. MSD pledge members benefit from free events training and coaching opportunities from the Council's team of ergonomics experts, as well as opportunities to share best practices and lessons learned with one another. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>